into the news on RTHK. AM, FM, and live online. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Tuesday the 11th of October. This is Peter Lewis on Money Talk on Radio 3 with an update on the latest business and finance stories. China's chip industry is preparing for sweeping new export curbs to come into effect. Under the new rules, the US said it would bar US firms from selling certain chips used for supercomputing and artificial intelligence to Chinese companies. The announcement wiped out 8.6 billion US dollars in market value from China's top chip makers on Monday. New data from China yesterday showed the mainland faced its weakest employment prospects on record in the third quarter. The People's Bank of China's Employment Sentiment Index slipped to 35.4. That's well below the 50 level that separates an improving outlook from a worsening one and was the lowest reading since the index began in 2010. Data from the mainland showed that tourism revenue declined 26% to 287 billion yuan, that's about 40.4 billion US dollars, over the week-long holiday from a year ago. Compared with pre-pandemic levels in 2019, revenue was down nearly 56%. UK Chancellor Kwesi Kwerting said Monday he will bring forward the date he will set out his new debt-cutting plan from November the 23rd to October the 31st in a bid to calm financial markets. Mr Kwarteng has vowed to come up with a plan to cut debt as a share of GDP within five years. The Bank of England announced Monday that it will strengthen the emergency stimulus measures put in place to help ease the market turmoil caused by the UK's budget of the 23rd of September. And JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimond warned Monday that a US recession is likely in six to nine months. In an interview with CNBC, Mr Diamond cited rising interest rates and Russia's invasion of Ukraine as factors adding to the risk of a recession in 2023. He warned that the downturn threatened to spark panic in credit markets and could wipe an additional 20% off the value of US stocks. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Iris Pang at ING Wholesale Banking and Carlos Casanova from UBP. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street, US stocks fell for a fourth day deeper into a bear market and the Nasdaq tumbled to a two-year low, hurt by tumbling semiconductor stocks. The Nasdaq Composite Index closed 1% lower at 10,542, its lowest close since July 2020. The Philadelphia Stock Exchange Semiconductor Index of American chip manufacturers fell 3.5% Monday, following a more than 6% drop on Friday. The S&P 500 fell 0.8% to 3,612. The Dow shed 94 points, or a third of a percent, to close at 29,203. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index ended the day 0.4% lower. London's FTSE 100 declined half a percent. Hong Kong stocks sank yesterday. The Hang Seng Index shed 523 points, or 3%, to a new 11-year low of 17,217, 
and the benchmark index erased all of last week's 3% gain. The tech index tumbled 4%. Mainland markets reopened yesterday after the Golden Week holidays, but traders were in a grim mood as COVID cases were rising sharply on the mainland and data released on Saturday showed China's services sector falling into contraction for the first time in four months. The Shanghai Composite Index tumbled 1.7% to 2,974. It's the first time it's been below the key 3,000 level since the 28th of April. It first rose above 3,000 in 2007, which means Chinese investors have gotten nowhere over the past 15 years. Shares in Chinese semiconductor companies slumped following the announcement from the White House that it will implement export controls that limit China's access to semiconductors. China's semiconductor manufacturing international company, SMIC, dropped 4% here in Hong Kong. Now a technology group slumped 10%, the daily limit in Shenzhen. And Huaohong Semiconductor tumbled 9.4%. Shanghai Fudan Microelectronics plunged over 20% in Hong Kong. And the declines have wiped out 8.6 billion US dollars in market value from China's top chip makers yesterday. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil settled 1.7% lower at $96.19 a barrel. Wheat futures jumped more than 7% in Chicago after Russia launched a wave of missile attacks on Ukrainian cities, raising concerns about grain exports out of Ukraine. Gold dropped 1.6% to $1,670 an ounce. U.S. bond markets were closed for the Columbus Day holiday, but in the U.K., despite the Bank of England announcing new measures to stabilise the government bond markets, the 30-year gilt yield soared as much as 36 basis points at one stage, before ending the day 29 basis points higher at 4.68%, pushing the U.K.'s long-term borrowing costs to the highest point since the Bank of England stepped in a couple of weeks ago. The U.S. dollar rallied for the fourth straight day, back to one-week highs. The euro this morning is at 97 cents. The buck's trading at a 145.66 Japanese yen. Sterling fell 0.2% to $1.10.5 and 8 Hong Kong dollars and 69 cents. The onshore yuan traded 0.6% weaker at 7.15 and a third per dollar as markets reopened. The PBOC set a stronger than expected fixing for a record-breaking 28th consecutive day. And Bitcoin overnight fell 2%, but it is holding just above 19000 for now at $19,100. And around Asia-Pacific stock markets as they open up for a new day. In Australia, the SX200 is up 0.2%. Japanese markets, which were closed yesterday, have reopened and are down 2%. Cosby in South Korea, which was also closed yesterday, is down 2.3%. And looks like the Hang Seng is going to fall about 75 points at the open this morning. Times eight, ten and a half. I think we're up for an economic debate this morning. We have two economists with us. Carlos Casanova, senior Asia economist at UBP, and Iris Pang, chief greater China economist at ING Wholesale Banking. Very good morning to you both. Good morning. 
Peter. Good morning, Peter. Um, let's start with these tech um, curbs on, uh, to, on exports to China. Um, China's chip industry is preparing for these sweeping new curbs to come into effect. Under the rules, the U.S. is going to bar U.S. firms from selling certain chips used for supercomputing and artificial intelligence to Chinese companies. And the restriction also targets sales from foreign firms that use U.S. technology in their equipment. Uh, the measures have wiped off $8.6 billion now in the value of Chinese chip makers uh, yesterday. Um, Iris, let's start with your thoughts on this. I mean, this seems to be the US and China are just falling deeper and deeper into an economic war here with no possibility of a, of a way out. What, what are your thoughts? Um, I think it is not new. Um, the US has um, uh, trying to ban or, or limit China's uh, getting supply of semiconductor chips and its technology from the U.S. And we have seen that for um, quite a few years. And China has prepared for this by um, pouring a lot of research into this high-tech semiconductor industry. But it see these new um, these new rules seem to go much further than anything we've seen uh, before by the U.S. and potentially far more damaging to China because it really limits their ability to get uh, some of the high technology they need to to develop their semiconductor industry. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it is is more damaging. But we we should um, believe that China has expected this. If mm. China doesn't has expected this, this. I, I believe that this is this is really um, uh, a very uh, slow reaction function from China, which I, I I really don't believe that is the case. So what we are looking for now is the capability of China to advance further with the difficulties to of getting the semiconductor equipments from the U.S. So for example, like the Netherlands. Um, company that uh, provide um, ASML. Yes, uh, many uh, semiconductor equipment to China. It actually has been warned by the U.S. Um, on providing the equipments to China, and it has suspended the contract. So, who's next, and how how speedy this is? Carlos, what are your thoughts? Um, so I do agree that China has seen this coming for many years now. In fact, uh, we were 100%, if not 150% expecting this decision to come right ahead of the party congress just to um, stir the markets a little bit before that all-important transition. I think that um, the market is inevitably going to hype it up a little bit. Um, I would like to um, take a step back and look at the data. Um, so China is actually more dependent on Taiwan um, and South Korea for more than half of its total semiconductor imports. Of course, um, the, the 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 ruling um, has extraterritorial you know aspects to it, um, and the U.S. Um, does uh, control 40% of equipment manufacturing supply chain globally. Um, so that's where the real bottleneck could be. But it becomes incredibly complicated to estimate the proportion of embedded U.S. technology upstream in the supply chain for manufacturers in foreign countries. So in practice, um, this will actually not hinder uh, a, a large part of the tech sector in China, although it's everything's being sold off very aggressively as a result of the, of the rules. Um, but it will, however, make it harder for China to develop the very, very cutting edge, 
cutting edge um, AI um, and other type of semiconductor technology that has potential military applications. And what can China do to mitigate the impact of this? Honestly, I think China has been pouring uh, billions in terms of resources to develop their domestic semiconductor industry, but it's easier said than done. You, you can't just pour money into it and expect it mm. to, to, to happen. In Taiwan, I think South Koreans have been trying to emulate what uh, TSMC has made in Taiwan, but it's not only about the hard infrastructure and being able to secure access from, of, of components from Holland. Um, you have once, the people as well, you? have you, to have the, the knowledge. People, yeah, you have to have the know-how and how does it all fit together and, and how, to, you know, how the process works from, from inception to, to end. All of that is a fine art that um, Taiwan has, uh, has managed very well and I think everyone else is still many years behind the curve. Iris, the um, Chinese say that this damages, well, not just their uh, industry, but also the U.S. semiconductor industry. And that seems to be true, judging by the, the performance of some of the chip stocks in the U.S. over the last couple of days. But it also damages global supply chains. That's, that's also true, isn't it? It does damage global supply chains. Yes, it does. Because um, what China is doing on semiconductors is actually producing for mostly um, companies from other economies, for example, Taiwan, South Korea, and a little bit of Japan. Um, so this is this is something that is is uh, creating chaos in the whole supply chain of semiconductor producing process. And what do other firms like the Taiwanese firms that Carlos just mentioned, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, they're in a difficult position as well, aren't they? Because they do uh, export their products to the U.S. and they also use U.S. technology. Yeah, um, but, the, but there is a little bit difference here. Um, they use U.S. technologies, but uh, what what type of firms that within that for example, uh, Taiwanese companies use um, that technology and how it use it, how distance it is from the direct supply chain um, uh, that has uh, that can involve China. So it is very complicated. I don't think that it is an easy calculation for anyone mm. here. So um, we have yet to see the impact. Okay. Carlos, I want to turn to the National Congress. The 20th National Congress Congress starts in Beijing on Sunday. What should we be looking out for from this? Well, the, the main thing I think investors uh, are looking out for, this is an event that happens every five years, and it's where the CCP reveals their leadership lineup for the next term. So I think given how many uh, personnel changes there will be this year, uh, that's the main thing that investors are watching out for. Um, from that, um, I think most of the analysts will be able to extrapolate um, you know, what that means for policies over the next five years. Um, and of course, in the run-up to the Congress, they've in, in fact tightened COVID restrictions quite significantly. So we are now seeing a severe, uh, severely dampened economic momentum into mm. the first month of the last quarter of the year, further delaying that recovery um, into the fourth quarter, if not 2023. Um, and so any sign um, that there's a change in tone regarding zero COVID um, won't likely happen overnight. But if there is any, any sign of that, I think that's something that investors will react positively to. So those would be the, th the three things I, I would look out for. Iris, do you think we're going to see any change in economic policy once the new lineup is, uh, is announced from the Congress? It could be. 
what I am looking for is um, who is going to uh, get or continue the economic advisory role. Um, That's Liu He's current role, yes, isn't it? Yes, Liu He. But um, it, he, he is about um, the retirement age. Mm. So this is a big question mark. And he is actually working very well with President Xi. And um, he has a, a very Western education background on businesses and on in economics. So um, I believe that his, if he stays, it will stabilize economic policy. And also, I presume, um, who replaces Li Keqiang? Because traditionally, the Prime Minister is, is the one responsible for sort of economic developments, economic policies on the mainland. Um, I, I have no answer for this. Um, and um, traditionally, there are variation of roles um, between press, the, the chairman and the premier. So um, whether the premier really sticks to domestic economics um, actually is is not really that um, uh, true for all the all the um, pairs that we have seen so far. Mm. So it can change too. Um, Carlos, obviously, there's, there's really no chances there of China meeting its 5.5% um, growth forecast. We've seen most analysts revised, been revising down several times now their forecasts. It seems the median forecast now is around about 3.5% uh, for the third quarter. What, what, what do you think? Indeed, the median forecast for for this year is three and a half percent, and that's following uh, lots and lots of downs of uh, downgrades from from different um, sides, both from Chinese analysts and also from some of the analysts in, in international banks here in Hong Kong. Um, I think the the downgrade cycle is likely um, over at this point in time. I, I don't know if it's still relevant to even discuss whether or not China can grow at five point five percent this year. No I would I would focus on whether or not China can even hit five percent next year, um, given that it is now clearer than before that this pivot out of zero COVID will likely be more gradual than some of the more bullish analysts had projected earlier in the year. So we are looking at some change in tone potentially after October that should pave the way for a new generation of leaders to, to start preparing to move from endemic from pandemic to endemic after they are confirmed in March. So before March, they won't be able to do anything and the, uh, the, the leaders that are leaving will not want to you know, dip into an unknown territory at the end of their careers. So after March, potentially a gradual shift, but they, they won't lift restrictions overnight. Can you imagine the, the millions of, of Chinese residents that will be traveling all of a sudden? Mm -hmm. um, so this is going to be a very protracted, um, gradual affair. And so it begs the question, if we are still doing zero COVID and, and controls and restrictions, um, is, is China going to expand significantly in the first quarter? And what does that mean for the year as a whole? So we currently have maintained our 5.0% growth forecast for next year, next year, but we acknowledge that there are some downside risks depending on what happens um, this week at the Party Congress. Iris, what are your expectations for uh, the economy this year and also moving into next year? I, I think this year we, we are almost there. Um, I, I don't expect any big changes from here because um, there are big issues from the real estate um, sector. Um, uh, we, but I believe that there will be more flexible COVID measures mm -hmm. uh, next year. So we should be moving 
better domestically in the first half. And then in the second half, we will face external recession like U.S. recession and Europe recession in the second half of next year, which will hit exporters. So this this year and next year won't be really good for China. China's really got to find a new growth model, hasn't it? So that's going to be the challenge for the new government uh, and for President Xi in, the, in, his, uh, in his third term. What's going to replace um, this reliance on uh, property? Um, I think they they are going to be hit by the real estate sector and what they are doing from yesterday's um, PBOC announcement of injecting um, some cash into the PLS uh, PSL um, uh, facility. It means that they are repeating the policy in 2014 to 2015. We have to recall that when the when the sector was really dire in 2014 it actually boomed in 2015 to 2017 so we can't be really pessimistic on the on the sector mm. it can actually come back quite fast it depending on the sentiments of the potential buyers um, just to go off tangents a bit, Carlos, it's interesting to compare China's growth with Vietnam's GDP uh, grew by 13.7%. Is, is Vietnam now um, taking over as, uh, from China as the, as the so-called world's factory? I think taking over is perhaps a, a little too ambitious. We are seeing um, some long-term structural tailwinds for a number of economies in Southeast Asia. Um, they are currently benefiting from um, economic reopening, so mm. the, whole, the region as a whole was a little bit slower than Europe and North America in, in moving on. Um, so they are still benefiting from that pent-up demand and reopening process. Um, and while um, the region has experienced significant outflows um, following from a more hawkish Fed, um, we are seeing, in, in fact, that it's not impacted economic activity that, that bad. So it's one of the reasons why I'm more positive on Asia for next year relative to other EMs and even DMs. Um, so, uh, and part of the long-term structural narrative, demographics is a, is a key role, of course, but it's also um, supply chain diversification. So under the China Plus One, a strategy. Many companies are looking to divest and they're looking at Vietnam, they're looking at Indonesia, they're looking at Malaysia. Uh -huh. um, and so that is going to be a long-term tailwind. This influx of foreign direct investment into these Asian economies with favorable demographics, big populations, and still uh, plenty of room to catch up in terms of urbanization and uh, growing their middle classes. That is oh, a positive okay, narrative. Okay, great. Thank you. Sorry to interrupt you, but we're, we're running out of time. That's Carlos Casanova, <laughs> who's Senior Asia Economist at UBP, and Iris Pang, Chief Greater China Economist at ING Wholesale Banking. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On the phone from Tokyo is journalist and author William Pesic. Morning, William. Good morning, Peter. So it's an important day for Japan, isn't it? It's going to start accepting today vaccinated uh, visitors from 68 countries without visas, removing, in effect, three years of uh, tight border controls. Is, uh, is Japan ready for this uh, influx of tourists? Are you, are you expecting to see a big boost? We are expecting to see a very big boost, actually. Um, you know, the, the, the high watermark for tourism for Japan was in 2019, just before the pandemic hit. Japan was finally in the last 
decade uh, warmed up to the idea of tourism as a major economic engine. 2019 was a great year for that, and of course the pandemic ruined those plans. So yeah, I mean, certainly Japan is ready for it. And with the yen down about 26% this year, um, Japan is arguably uh, uh, quite the bargain mm-hmm. at the moment for foreign travelers. It's a very safe locale. And so, yeah, we are expecting um, the floodgates to open to some extent, and it should be interesting to see how things go in the next couple of months. I mean, that Japanese yen is is a real boost, isn't it? It's making everyone think about Japan as a, as a destination at the moment uh, for visitors. Is, is the government sort of almost using that uh, as part of its growth plan now? Well, it is certainly. I think in many ways Japan has resigned itself to the idea that the yen is weak uh, in, in large part because the Federal Reserve is, you know, raising interest rates and likely to raise rates further. So I think in some ways Japan might intervene to try to uh, put a floor under the yen to some extent, but they have resigned themselves to trying to make the best of it. And, you know, the tourism boom that we're about to see in the next couple of months um, is uh, very much part of that strategy. And you have heard Prime Minister Kishida talking a bit more about how, you know, we don't want the yen to go too much further, but from a tourism standpoint, from an investment standpoint, uh, it's an asset at the moment. So is this going to make a big difference to the Japanese economy over the next quarter or so? Well, in some ways, you know, we're a bit too far into 2022 for it to make a big, uh, you know, for it to have a major, major effect on the economy. Um, But at the margin, it will help. I mean, Japan has been kind of stumbling along from quarter to quarter for the last few years. And so anything that increases consumption is a good thing. I mean, when you think about the kinds of construction boom you've seen in cities like uh, Kyoto over the last few years, uh, you know, a lot of hotels opened up in 2019 in expectation of this tourism boom Japan was seeing. And a lot of those places have just been very, very quiet. So certainly that will be a help. I think Japan's been trying to route more tourists out of Tokyo inland a bit. So, again, it'll be interesting to see how those efforts pay off over the next couple of months. But, you know, at the margin, uh, it certainly helps. Now, tourists hopefully are coming back. But what, what about investors, though? They, um, the Japanese market, the stock market, should be equally cheap for them with the, the cheap yen. But they don't seem to be so keen, do they, on investing in Japan at the moment? I mean, Japan's problem is, you know, we're an aging economy with a low productivity problem. Um, and that, for investors, is not a great scenario. What's interesting is the yen is down, as we mentioned, 26% this year alone. And we haven't seen, you know, KKR hasn't come knocking, right? We haven't seen a lot of uh, large investment companies coming to Japan. We haven't seen Carl Icahn, and we mm. haven't seen Warren Buffett arriving in Japan saying that there are some bargains here. Let me mm. buy up some companies. And we've seen very little of that, which is... Not surprising, again, given the fact that Japan is an aging, low popu- uh, a low productivity economy at the moment. So the weekend certainly should be pulling investment this way. It hasn't arrived just yet. Okay, William, thank you very much. Always good to talk to you. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Japan right now, the Nikkei 225 is currently off uh, 2%. In Australia, the SX200 is rising a quarter of a percent. The Cosby in South Korea is really sinking at the open this morning, down 2.5%. Uh, looks like the Hang Seng is going to lose another 100 points at the open as well this morning. I'll be back tomorrow morning with more business and finance updates for you at 8 o'clock on Money Talk. Coming up after the news is Back Chats with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. The weather forecast for today, fine and very dry, cooler in the morning. 
Uh, the maximum temperature is going to be about 27 degrees during the day. Fine and very dry uh, tomorrow. There is a red fire danger warning in force. It's 22 degrees right now, 48% relative humidity. Time's 8.31. Here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. President Biden says the United States will continue to supply Ukraine with the support it needs to defend itself, including advanced air defense systems. His comments come after Russia launched more than 80 missiles at sites across the country yesterday. President Zelensky of Ukraine said despite the destruction, the cleanup had already begun. Now, across the whole country, restoration works are ongoing. We will restore all objects which were destroyed by the strike of Russian terrorists. It's only a question of time. I set a task for all structures of our state to work so that the restoration would be as fast as possible. Meanwhile, President Putin has confirmed that Russia launched a barrage of missile attacks across Ukraine in retaliation for Saturday's explosion on the only bridge leading to annexed Crimea. He said the strikes had targeted energy, military and communications facilities. By its action, the Kiev regime has de facto aligned itself with international terrorist formations, with most heinous groups. To leave such crimes with no response is just not possible anymore. A massive strike was carried out with high-precision, long-range weapons from air, sea and land. The bosses of Airbus and Air France have been greeted with cries of shame at the opening of a long-awaited trial in Paris connected with a deadly plane crash off Brazil. The two firms deny involuntary manslaughter in connection with the loss of the Air France A330 on its way from Rio de Janeiro to Paris. 228 people died. A lawyer for some of the families, Sebastian Buzzi, said Airbus had not fully taken into account the potential risks involved when sensors ice up. Airbus is accused of underestimating the danger of accidents relating to the icing up of PITO sensors and of not having provided the airlines with information that would have allowed them to inform their pilots. They did not train their crews to think, I understand what's happening. I determine the incident that's occurring and I apply the correct procedure. And the Mexican government has filed another lawsuit against U.S. companies it claims are responsible for the flow of illegal weapons into Mexico. Will Grant has this report. The Mexican government accuses gun dealers and manufacturers of specifically targeting an illegal market and facilitating the flow of weapons south into Mexico. Supporters of these legal actions by the Mexican government say they highlight a situation which has seen the country flooded with guns from the United States many which reached the country through illegal straw purchasers who then passed them on to traffickers. Critics, however, say the Mexican government was well aware that winning such lawsuits in the US is almost impossible under the current law and so amounted to little more than a PR campaign. More news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about uh, mental health, especially among the elderly population during the pandemic. Research uh, earlier this year has shown a surge in the risk of depression and anxiety among elderly people during the fifth wave of infections. About one third of those interviewed suffered from emotional distress, showing signs of 
of depression, anxiety or loneliness. Meanwhile, another survey found that the level of happiness among Hong Kong residents in general had returned to the level of 2018, despite uh, depressive symptoms being on the rise. After 9.15, we'll be hearing more about uh, new vaccines targeting Omicron.